0: Hey everyone, back again to continue Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus. Today, I'm gonna to be talking about chapter eight, 1874, Three Novellas or What Happened, chapter nine, 1933, Micropolitics and Segmentarity, and chapter 10, 1730, Becoming Intense, Becoming Animal, Becoming Imperceptible. And before jumping into it, a few things to say. If you wanna follow me, you can do that at on Instagram, uh, at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. If you're listening to this on YouTube, you can find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts. There shouldn't be any ads there, so that's a bonus. Um, if you're listening to this in podcast form, you can find this on YouTube where there might be some videos that aren't available uh, in podcast form. If you want to help me out, like, share, subscribe. If you haven't already, uh, You know, leave comments. That all helps a lot. If you wanna help out monetarily, you can do that via the links below. That would be obviously greatly appreciated, but uh, don't don't feel obliged. If you're listening to this in a podcast form or on a platform, Spotify or iTunes or whatever, leave five stars. Uh, that would help me a lot. Um, and leave comments because uh, I would love to read them. Now, in the interest of not wasting any more of your time, let's jump into it here. So chapter 8, 1874, colon, three novellas or... What happened? Now, with every like subsequent chapter, there was uh, a date before the name of the chapter, and I, I, had a reason for each one. This one, I don't really know. I spent a lot of time researching it, and I couldn't figure out what 1874 signified. But it could be a few different things. Um, it's the, it was the year uh, William Somerset Maugham, Maugham was was born. Frost was born. Gertrude Stein was born. <laughs> Um, this was when James, Henry James, was writing. Uh, this is also when Guy de Montpassant was writing. He was a French um, writer. But I would love to know, if someone does know, please share it with me. So as you might have figured, this chapter is going to be talking about writing, specifically the novella. And the novella is what exists kind of, you know, it's if you don't know what a novella is, it is a short story that is longer than a short story but shorter than a novel it's like a just a small novel that doesn't go quite as small as to become a short story now they contrast the novella with the tale so the tale is obviously a much longer thing that spans in many cases many years so a few examples would be like the iliad or the odyssey or something but they say that the novella is organized around a couple of central questions and these questions are what happened or whatever could have happened, hence the title of the chapter, three novellas or what happened, whereas the tale is organized around the question what is going to happen. So the novella turns to the past, you know, it's asking often what happened. It, it often comes about in the ruins of, of some event and it spends that time trying to figure out what had transpired. So Additionally, there is the novel, which can't be ignored, and the novel for Deleuze and Guattari incorporates elements of both. It it asks what happened, and it also uh, asks what is going to happen. And there's this both this unfolding and this uncovering. So, but of course, their interest is really with the novella, which looks to the immediate past that is a secret. You know, tries to uncover what has happened. whereas in the tale it looks to the future and and the story kind of unfolds before our eyes or before our ears. So given this we can't just say that the novella concerns the past as though its only task is to reveal the so-called truth of the past. Instead it presents what they call the formal dimension of something that has happened. So it is not as though there is an event and then the novella is what immediately follows the event in a kind of teleological way or in a way from like going from point A to point B. Instead, we should think of the novella as a result of the event, as as the the event kind of effectuating or necessitating the existence of the novella, which gives the event its form kind of retroactively. So there's a kind of deconstruction or a, or a destabilization of the temporality assumed here, where the novella is what immediately follows the event, so it's not as though the event is what is very far past or what has what happened long ago, but rather the distinction between its happening or the lapse of time between the happening and the novella followed by the uncovering are all so close together that we can hardly say that one comes before the other. And let me put this in another way where the novella gives a face to the event, but it is the event that gives potential to the novella. So in this, there's a kind of circularity occurring. The novella provides for the event that supposedly came before it, which then potentiates the novella. So there's that uh, kind of give and take here. So the novella has an expression of both content and form. So again, we're keeping with this distinction between expression and content. So uh, these are what, what they call the body posture, which are states of the body when it is surprised by something. They call this the content. So the body posture is the content. There is the question, what happened, which is the uh, expression. And then there is the secrecy, you know, the thing that has to be uncovered. The form, what, is, what remains hidden. So this will come back into play, so let me just reiterate it so it's clear. We have the body posture, which is kind of the immediate reaction, how the event affects certain people, or in their words, states of the body when it is surprised by something. That is the content of the novella. The expression is the asking what happened, the uh, wanting to uncover the uh, truth. And then the secrecy is exactly that which remains hidden, and it is the form. So Because the novella troubles the kind of linear temporality, what it does is it opens up various lines of flight for them. So up to this point it should be pretty clear how we characterize a line of flight. It's kind of the designation of possibilities that branch out from linear sequencing of like basic cause and effect. And they call these the living lines or the flesh lines. And to illustrate this, they look at three novellas, hence the title. Um, And really, I'm only going to elaborate on the first one because that's the only one they really elaborate on. And then the other two, I'm just going to kind of present in the way that they do without going into great detail about summarizing each of the stories. So the first novella is Henry James's In the Cage that follows a young um, telegrapher, so a someone who works the telegraph machines at the, some uh, place, whose job in a little telegraph booth is to connect other people across segments and strata. So uh, someone contacts the telegrapher who then transmits information or the message to someone else. So alongside this young woman is her fiancé who works next door as a grocer. So we have these two figures. We have this, this young woman and this young man who are uh, bound to be wed, existing in, you know, a spatially enclosed area. You know, they work very close together, and they both have pretty mundane jobs. But these jobs are kind of both meeting places of people, where the uh, telegrapher is uh, the person that connects others, whereas the grocer is someone who um, supplies for others in the meeting place of the grocery store. Now, both of these people are segmented, as per the previous um, chapters, and the segmentation is meant to ensure and control the identity of each agency, including personal identity. And their segmentation isn't like a foreclosure of possibility, per se. They have possibility, like they're engaged to be married, which would then portend probably owning a house, which would then portend having 2.3 kids, Maybe it would portend having grandchildren. You know, there are movements implied here, but these movements are segmented. They're kind of controlled and mandated. So in their words, that is for Deleuze and Guattari, these two people have a future, but they have no becoming. So good things can happen to them. Like, it's not as though their lives are totally destitute, bound for unhappiness because of this. They will have love. They will have happiness. They will have things they need. But they don't have the excitement of becoming. Or, in other words, they do not have the possibility to make new connections. They only have the possibility for conjunction, which they say is a kind of limited connection. When you conjunct, when you form conjunctions, you are only connecting with moral, molar, sorry, molar aggregates, not molecular ones. So that's why they can so easily fold into the, their identities of their social class, being a man, being a woman, you know, these molar identities that foreclose change and development. So, however, one day this young te- uh, telegrapher uh, is is greeted or, I guess, met by a wealthy man whose posture, his content, his how he's presenting himself, conveys to the telegraphist his containing a secret, the form. Remember the form? And she has kind of a, an expression of intrigue and that's her expression so suddenly her life because of this this man who comes and has the secret is exploded upon the micro aggregates away from the molar ones where time ceases to be as it was it was previously linear and now she's been blown up into this uh, this new possibility she's been able to occupy new lines of flight into newness but as the story goes this this is very uh this is fleeting she doesn't spend a whole lot of time exploring these new potentials instead she falls back upon the molar aggregate of her you know being a fiance uh her being um a wife to come whatever now we would be all too quick to say oh well that was a lost opportunity for this young telegraphist telegraphist i don't know how to pronounce it but Deleuze and Guattari say that that's not exactly the case, because she now falls back upon this molar aggregate that, where it was comfortable and nice. But she brings with her this knowledge of these new possibilities, and that is where like, a certain um, investment can happen that would otherwise have been ignored. And this is also speaking to the fact that Deleuze and Guattari think it possible to work from within the system to kind of undo it, where it isn't about tearing it all down, you know, just rapidly deterritorializing. Instead, it is the process of deterritorialization deterritorialization that implies a, a concomitant re-territorialization, and then this uh, dual sequence occurring over and over and over again. So they see that there's kind of a new possibility afforded in her now occupying this molar aggregate with this new molecular knowledge so she has this new outlook occupying a new line an abstract line for that matter and a kind of absolute deterritorialization in the mixing of the molar and the micro lines and we see this all this essentially potentiated by this novella and that propels them into the second novella they talk about F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Crack-Up. So, they don't really elaborate on the um, plot of this one uh, except to elaborate on the same kind of three lines that, uh, in the previous story, the woman was able to then occupy or kind of use. So, the abstract line and the molecular line and the molar line. So in this story, though, or with this story, they give these these lines different names where they call them the break line, the crack line, and the rupture line. So the break line is the line of rigid segmentarity with molar breaks. So that's like the break between uh, man, woman, between upper and lower class, for example. Now the crack line is the line of supple segmentation with molecular cracks. So these are like the cracks between different intensities found even within the molar uh, aggregates, you know, the different machines that connect to one another within these molar aggregates. And then finally there's the rupture line that is the line of flight or rupture, abstract, deadly, and alive, non-segmentary. And it is in this rupture line that we see these new avenues opened up for these new possibilities to connect to new territories and then to even newer ones from there and so on and so forth. And then they move to their third novella, which is uh, The Story of the Abyss and the Spyglass by Pierrette uh, Flutio. Flutio, I that's how you pronounce it. Uh, but it's very much like this uh, Fitzgerald one in which they don't really elaborate on the plot. Instead, they extract from it just an idea that more or less confirms everything they've been saying so far throughout the course of the book. So they use this book to introduce or to extend their argument You know in the previous book they used it to talk about break lines and rupture lines and all that now they use it to talk about what they call near seers seers and far seers which is totally counterintuitive because a near seer someone who sees closely would seem to be someone who sees micro or molecular kind of connections whereas the far seer is someone who would see macro ones Unless they mean it in the way that they can't see near. Anyways, it whatever. So they say that the near seer sees macro connections or kind of molar aggregates, whereas the far seer sees micro ones, and that's really all they kind of present from this novella. Which um, so I don't know exactly how in this novella it communicates that. Uh, you know, we can assume from the title. It's about the story of the abyss and the spyglass. So we are assuming there's a kind of seeing occurring here through the spyglass. But in any case, these three novellas present these different perspectives in relation to deterritorialization, or these different kinds of possibilities. And it is the duty for them of schizoanalysis to kind of reveal these possible lines of flight that these these stories have opened up. Now they make an interesting case here. Uh, and it's not really a case, they just kind of have this offshoot of a sentence in which they say that not everyone is allowed to engage in these kinds of lines of flight. And they make kind of the suggestion that, you know, oppressed people, for example, can't do it, which makes, like, makes a lot of sense, because it's one thing for them to be, like, deterritorialized, you know, become a body without organs, find your lines of flight. But if you're in, like, forced servitude through like for example like if you're a uh, a Bangladeshi woman who who has to be working in like a um a factory to make a, just a little bit of money or you are what um oh god what's the name Gillespie I think uh talks about in terms of like custodians of the internet so people who like surf the internet to get rid of the most heinous content that can be found on there you don't have these opportunities to, I guess, exploit these lines of flight. You know, you are regimented and segmented much against your own volition. So they they essentially say that, which is just nice to hear, because at times it's like, well, who, who is this for? Who is this project for? So another important takeaway from here is that between the different Possible lines. So we have our lines of flight, we have our macro lines or macro breaks, and we have our molecular breaks and lines. It's not as though these things are mutually exclusive. You know, we can find examples of lines of flight within molar aggregates. We can find molar aggregates that kind of subordinate lines of flight that kind of control them, block them. And so we should consider it rather as a more holistic, dynamic. Interaction between the three that map onto one another and they aren't just separate. And it's from there that we move into chapter 9, 1933 Micropolitics and Segmentarity. So 1933 was pretty significant. You know, it was right around the time the Great Depression was kicking in. It was also the time when the National Socialists in Germany were taking control, and that's going to play a part in here, at least in the way that Deleuze and Guattari consider fascism and the distinction between fascism and totalitarianism so they begin by thinking about segmentarity which we should already be familiar with to this point but they kind of bring it up once again so they say that life is spatially and socially segmented so houses are segmented into rooms for examples factories are segmented into tasks and so on and so forth so there are three different kinds of segmentation there's a binary segmentation, a circular segmentation, or a linear segmentation. So a binary segmentation might be like the distinction between men and women, for example. A circular segmentation is between different people's affairs kind of overlapping. So there's I have my own business and then my neighbor has their business and we have there are these different segments that might like overlap. For example, I live in a, a house and I, I live in the basement of a house like a like a troll and the people immediately above me and I have like a vested interest in not making too much noise for the other people. Uh, So we see these interests kind of fold into one another. So there's that kind of division. For example, you know, you could think of a million other examples. And then there are linear segments, which would be like distinctions between home, school, church, um, etc. And these I guess these circuits or these segments happen one after the other where there's a beginning and an end. So you leave the home, go to school, leave the school, go back to home, leave home to go to church or whatever, leave church to go back home. And we see a kind of uh, beginning where one ends and, and so on and so forth, hence the linearity. And where does this come from, this, this looking at the world in terms of segmentarity? Well, they say that it comes from ethnology that was trying to look at so-called primitive people, uh, ancient civilizations, or not civilizations, really ancient people, pre-civilization, how they were wondering how we can look at these people without them having a kind of centralized state apparatus or like control, a kind of central control. So it was then taken up that they would be looked at in terms of various segments So they would have different, you know, duties, for instance, where even in nomadic tribes, it was assumed that there would be people that'd be hunting, and that forms like a segment. And then people that were doing various other duties, then that was a segment. Then there might be like a religious organization or religious component, and that was another segment. But they didn't have a kind of guiding figurehead around which these different segments um, coalesced or kind of gravitated. So it was from there that we develop the, the critical tools to engage with the world in terms of segmentarity. So even though relatively these so-called primitive people were more segmented than us, it doesn't mean that we can't look at our own world through segmentation, where even our centralized, uh, you know, poles, for example, government or police, um, or in the case, a better case would be like under totalitarianism, you know, the immediate ruler, be it uh, Hitler or Mao or Pol Pot or something, there would be still, we would still look upon those single points as another segment in themselves. So it isn't though we oppose segmented primitive people with uh, centralized modern ones, because we recognize that both have segments. Instead, what they propose is looking at supple what they call supple primitive segments versus the more rigid modern segments so they're going to continue or uh, consider the three segments already presented those are binary circular and linear ones in relation to the distinction between primitive people and uh, modern people so primitive people i just hate that word um um but I don't know another one. So, anyways, in the terms of binary segmentation, primitive people still probably had various binaries, like maybe between man and woman. I'm not saying they did, but they might have. They might have had binaries between human and animal. Uh, but, you know, if you had a tribe, say a nomadic or barely sedentary tribe, and they came in contact with humans that were not part of that tribe, they may not have known if those humans were humans or if they were animals or if they were gods or if they were royalty or, or they were uh, ghosts or something, however they might have engaged with them. So it may have been very possible that we had this binary distinction not only between humans and animals as though humans were this kind of universal, uh, universally understood category, you know, uh, erect Homo sapiens, but instead there could have been this binary attitude between humans as well from human tribe to human tribe. So we could see then that, okay, if we have the possibility of kind of binary interactions within primitive segments, how do we make sense of the distinction? Well, for them, again, we're dealing with the binary segments here. For them, any kind of binary distinction that might've been erected within among primitive people was only done according to various ambiguous mechanisms, in that there was no kind of guiding principle that had to be followed. So it would have just been maybe a fleeting um, idea that wouldn't have had real purchase on everyday life for a very long period of time, but instead was just something that was happened. Whereas with um, modern civilization, it's very clear that binaries are what you know constitutes the modern, even in its very formation, as being the non-primitive, the thing that's supposed to stand uh, outside of the kind of evilness of nature, or I forget how Hobbes puts it, but the the depravity of nature or something. Um, So binaries are imminent to this kind of social field, and they are meant to rejuvenate and, and reform themselves. So there's that distinction in the binary sense. Now, in terms of circular segmentation, and again, circular segmentation segmentation is referring to the different kinds of interests that people have. Like, I gave the example of mine and my neighbors having different interests, but there's some overlap. So they say that in primitive societies, all of these different interests, you know, they resonate together to some extent, but they have the opportunity to veer off into very interesting, you know, untamed territory. So even in examples of primitive people who might have had some kind of religious authority or even like a kind of hierarchical ruler of the, of the community, their control was only local, which could then be very easily usurped. So it didn't have a kind of um, rigidity. It was much more, in their words, supple. Whereas with modern state formations, uh, all the points of the various different circles that form these segments uh, essentially resonate together under the guiding principle of, you know, for the sake of modern uh, society or control. So you see then the overlap of like the control mandated by the school teacher who becomes like the drill sergeant, who becomes the bureaucrat, who becomes the, uh, you know, government official, whatever. And they all organize all these different figures organize the resonances between different circles different segmented circles and then finally we have in terms of linear segmentation that occurs from like different zones like school to home to church to whatever uh, beginning and end in a linear way the modern state essentially dictates movement turning becoming into territories Uh, So this is the emergence of a geometry and arithmetic to segment and partition land, which is essentially a kind of overcoating where it's like that zone is where this must must occur and you must go there for X amount of time, you know, according to the emergence of like arithmetic and uh, to better mandate and control the movement and flows of people. Whereas with like primitive society, there would not have been such segmentation, such rigid segmentation. So the modern state then sees only, in their words, trees, the kind of arborescent model, these kinds of uh, broad structures that allow very little mobility. Now, like the last chapter in considering the different lines of flight, or the different kinds of flight or lines, I should say, it's not as though elements of so-called primitive people and modern people are uh, mutually exclusive examples of each can be found in the other which is how they were so effective at, um, at warding off what they call uh, the state formation or how the war machine was capable of warding that off which i'm going to talk about next week with chapter uh, 12. but i will i'll elaborate on it just for a second here where primitive people had this thing called the war machine and the war machine had actually very little to do with war, as we know it today. Instead, the war machine is what opposes segmentation, rigid segmentation. And primitive people embraced this war machine that was a kind of a radical indeterminacy. And it was within that uh, indeterminacy that they had various um, kind of hierarch- hierarchical formations, like, like the existence of priests, or like clan leaders, or, or tribe leaders, or whatever. And... These people would always kind of be held to account by the war machine, so that their power was never could never galvanize to a point that would crystallize the state formation or the state. So they internalized these primitive people internalized elements of the state in the form of the parts of the war machine that could then, un, or, or kind of exercise or conjure away or ward off the form formation of the war machine. But then the state emerged, and then the state appropriated the war machine for the sake of war. So then, all it knew about the war machine was not like undoing power over and over and over again to totally undo these rigid segments, but to just use the war machine for its own one um, kind of its own interests. But that this is very that's very introductory. Next week I get into it a lot more detail. Now to return to the idea that these aren't separate. That is, you don't have kind of primitive molecular formations on one side and modern molar ones on the other. We can see that in fascism, as they characterize it, fascism makes heavy use of molecular components because it is comprised of a mass. Like, we learn this from Hannah Arendt, but she relates it to totalitarianism, really. Um, there's a kind of a conflation of the two there, or at least she talks about them in a similar vein. Whereas for Deleuze and Guattari, they see that that fascism relies pretty heavily on different segments maintaining their difference. So then you have like, uh, you, you know, you have the war council and then you have different, um, the people that are segmented into different interests. You have the workshop uh, people that are organizing for their own interest in the service of fascism. And then you have the rural workers doing it. And then you have like the bureaucrats doing it, all forming these kinds of like co- coherent, um, segments that don't necessarily resonate with one another but that eventually come together in service of the uh, fascist project so to be anti-fascist then does not simply mean that we must become molecular because fascism makes use of uh, molecularism of molecules of smaller uh, uh, microscopic segments and this is how uh they use the term micro-fascism in that we you know, all have these possible uh, movements towards fascism within us that assume a kind of micro-formation and that foreclose possibility not only to ourselves but to everyone else. In fact, this is what makes fascism so effective because it, it so readily is able to control even those micro-points that would on the surface appear to challenge it. So they take this idea so far as to say that the segmented line in terms of macropolitics is immersed in and prolonged by quantum, uh, quantum flows in terms of micropolitics that continually reshuffle and stir up its segments. So it's almost like, um, like inoculation or like getting a vaccine where let's think of the body as the molar aggregate, let's call it fascism in this way. And so the body injects some of what challenges it in the term of a virus that might pose a threat to it so that the body can learn how to fight the virus. Fascism, which is a molar aggregate, like let's not, let's not harbor any illusions, there's still like a figurehead with like one goal, it's a moral molar aggregate, but it introduces components of the um, molecular into it so that it can better control it and mandate it, or them, those, those kind of molecular points. So we should neither totally admonish molar aggregates while celebrating molecular ones, because as they show with uh, fascism, they can go hand in hand. So they introduce a third term, like in the last chapter, and that is dealing specifically with lines of flight that deterritorialize. But it's not just like a a total deterritorialization again. Lines of flight imply a movement from one territory to another, and then from another to another, another to another. Now it is important to know that they don't stake all of their kind of liberatory potential within these lines of flight, because uh, power has three zones, and they happen to cohere pretty well with these lines of flight. So there is its zone of power relating to the segments of of a solid line. So that's its macu- macro uh, kind of zone, its control. Then there is its mo- molecular control, which is its control over the zone of indiscernibility um relating to its diffusion throughout a microphysical fabric. And then finally there's its zone of impotence relating to the flows and quanta it can only convert without being able to control or define. But that doesn't mean it doesn't try to. In fact they apply these three different zones to banking, to kind of world banking, where the first, that is the molar one, refers to public central banks, the second, the molecular one, um, refers to indefinite series of private relations between banks and borrowers. So there's all these little mini connections occurring. And then third, the lines of flight, the kind of pure deterritorialized ones, are the desiring flow flows of money, right? Because capitalism doesn't have, you know, it isn't controlled or mandated. It just goes where it wants. So the first is defined by the state apparatus, the second by molecular fabric, and third by the abstract machine of mutation flows and quanta. So none of these on their own kind of are immediately in themselves good, per se, because they can be appropriated for bad, which, speaking to what I've really been trying to emphasize, they have an ambiguous relationship to deterritorialization. It's not as though it's just immediately a good thing. Um, And I often hear that people are like, you know, deterritorialize, that's all we have to do. But Deleuze and Guattari do not advocate that at all. It is the task of schizoanalysis to determine which of these lines, which of these zones, which of these possibilities can be good, and how each one of them can be good. Now, fascism is something, is a kind of state formation that appropriates all three to some extent, if we consider the way that fascism relates to, like, corporatism, especially in, in Italy in the, during World War II. But we see then that fascism, for them, borrowing from the work of Paul Virilio, Fascism is suicidal because it just wants to totally destratify. It wants to get rid of everything and just leave chaos in its stead. That has appropriated the war machine uh, to make war its object and would rather annihilate its own servants than stop the destruction. So it only has destruction as its goal. Whereas totalitarianism, for them, tries to block lines of flight, tries to maintain control. Whereas fascism is just. Like, in Nazi Germany, it was just about expanding. And that was part of their the downfall of uh, Nazi Germany. And that propels us here into chapter 10. 1730, Becoming Intense, Becoming Animal, Becoming Imperceptible. And I forgot to say, you'll be able to find... <laughs> it's a terrible time to bring this up. You'll be able to find timestamps in the description so that you, if you just need one of these chapters, that's that's that. Uh, You'll be able to find it easily there. Now, I'm a noob, and 1730 to me means nothing. Uh, It was, you know, a time of relative change, I guess, in the world. But, um, yeah, I don't really know what they're referring to specifically. But another thing to say about this chapter is that it's like almost 100 pages, and it's kind of aphoristic in that it's just kind of presenting different ideas uh, in these various different sub-chapters that all kind of cohere around the same um, theme of becoming so because of that I'm the way I'm presenting this is not going to be nearly as faithful as you as reading it so you really have to read this chapter to get the sense of what they're doing here in its entirety now with that being said I think that I've extracted kind of the main soul of this chapter in order to let you know enough about what is going on here so let let me just jump into it so they begin by considering natural history and how natural history very much like linguistics as they already criticized is concerned with like analogies drawing connections so for the natural historian the evolutionary historian or whatever uh, gills are to water what lungs are to air so it's drawing these connections between like humans and animals that ground them, you know, that give a kind of deliberate uh, purpose for an organ to say that the organ is there because it does this and that's it, wipe our hands of it and move away. And that discourse immediately forecloses, immediately stops the possibility of becoming. So in that example that human lungs, lungs are to uh, air what gills are to water, draws an immediate connection that might seem to be quite revolutionary between humans and animals. And it might begin to de-anthropomorphize the world, right? To say, like, look, animals have these similar things to humans. But for Deleuze and Guattari, that's, it's just too reductive. Now, they contrast this to neo-evolution, evolutionism that looks at animals, or it takes into account their... Um, they don't look at their specific generic characteristics, specific or generic characteristics, but they instead look upon animals in terms of populations that vary from milieu to milieu. So all animals form and are multiplicitous packs. You know, not just multiplicitous, but they are are multiplicitous multiplicities. They are just never-ending becomings. So in the act of becoming animal, in that process of becoming an animal, You don't just become or have your qualities transferred as though like your lungs transfer into gills that just serve the same function in relation to a relatively different uh, atmosphere, you know, air to water or um, kind of um, different viscosity of whatever substance you find yourself in. It is instead the becoming packness of the human in the terms of becoming animal. So we feel these becomings in affect in, in in affected ways, which is what they call the effectuation of a power of the pack that throws the self into upheaval and makes it real. So uh, in as opposed to looking at emotion as being a kind of subjective thing, where you know, I have a history and my history dictates my emotion. That is decidedly, individualistic and it assumes a great deal of command over one's emotions and a great deal of command over how we have been affected affect by contrast is going to look at the multiplicitous effects that have kind of imparted themselves upon us that have inscribed themselves upon us and that we don't really have much control over and rest us that take us away from this kind of individualized subject position into multiplicities and this happens in in a number of other avenues uh you know writing does this you know reading literature does this as they will come to say by the end uh painting and music do do this as well they can they can rest us from this kind of subject position so what are we talking about when we talk about becoming animal well they're very careful about this they're like you, you aren't becoming your like domesticated dog or cat or domesticated fish, you know, kind of um, f- closed off being that, you know, is just subject to your your movements, your uh, flows. They also aren't referring to like state or science animals, like animals used with uh, for like big ag, big agriculture or just like exploited en masse. We, we aren't talking about those animals. We're talking about pack and multiplicitous animals, you know, the kinds of animals we see in the wilderness. But you can't think of this in terms of like me or anyone just becoming like a wolf because that is not becoming wolf. That is became wolf, which isn't a distinction that they make, but I'm just using it to kind of highlight this because that would be all too reductive. It would just be then, oh, I've done it, I've completed the task, I've become wolf, that's it. Whereas what they are sketching here is an endless chain of becoming that they use in terms of minority categories, which I will come to explain in more detail. Like the animal, that because of their minority status, they're being separate from the majoritarian character of human specifically as they come to say you know european white men they then embody a kind of perpetual change where there is no such thing as a wolf or there's that um funny comedy show there's no such thing as a fish or i forget if that's it's the british one Uh, there's no such thing as a fish because it's always changing and in flux and i know that's not why they they say that but uh, that comedy show is called that but there's no such thing as becoming wolf. Instead, or there's no such thing as the wolf, I should say. There's only becoming wolf. And even the wolf is in the, pro, um, the perpetual process of becoming wolf, as they are also becoming bee, as they are also becoming grass, as they are also becoming, um, you know, tree, whatever. It's always this process of becoming. But they add an interesting qualification here. And they say that it's not just about becoming the kind of abstract quality of like a wolfness or something. Instead, it is about becoming or or drawing yourselves to specific characteristics, what they call, and I might pronounce this incorrectly, haecity, he- he- H-A-E-C-C-E-I-T-Y, I believe, haecity, which are the kind of discerning characteristics of a given animal or species or something so they say that it's not just enough to become animal but it is to kind of connect oneself to the exceptional qualities of the head of the pack which is kind of the lead animal which isn't to de- to reinscribe hierarchy but it is instead to attach oneself to that being who in that moment has become the the kind of creature the the animal uh the kind of lead animal but that will inevitably have that position usurped and mutated once again so you not only become that animal in its superiority but you also become the very inevitability of its being undone again additionally when you become the kind of anomalous uh animal the head the head of the pack you occupy then or become part of the phenomenon of bordering the enveloping line or farthest dimension, which is where the most radical possibility lies. And it is in this way, and they don't elaborate on this too much, but they say that by establishing the existence of these heisides, heisides these kind of um, discernible characteristics, these anomalies, we are able to see the kind of borderlines of. Uh, of the animal pack, of the animal um, construction, that makes it possible to establish a classification system for packs while avoiding the pitfalls of an evolutionism. So it doesn't just, you know, ascribe to this pack a history that that just outright determines the pack, but it recognizes that the pack has limits, and we all have limits. And this, I think, speaks to their um, general fear of both the idea of a rigid segmentarity and the idea of a just a total destratification, as though there are no kind of meanings anywhere, as though people don't have, I don't know, culture, identity, as though wolves don't have secret codes, uh, lines of lineage or whatever that govern in a given moment what can or cannot be done. And then they extend this from animals, of course, to the idea of becoming woman becoming child, becoming minoritarian, becoming nomad. Because it's not just about one of these categories, like just becoming one thing and then that's it. It is instead about moving into N dimensions, you know, infinite possible dimensions, uh, and potentiated by a kind of sorcery, you know? And the writer is the sorcerer, one of these kind of sorcerers for them, someone who's able to effectuate these changes, these movements into deterritorialization. So every becoming is then multiplicitous, as that should already be uh, clear. And in this, we embrace our Aeonic selves. So Aeon is contrasted with chronos. Chronos refers to like chronology, like a a mechanistic, you know, idea about cause and effect or moving from point A to point B. Aeon is like different times affecting different points from different locations and, and so on and so forth. And when we consider the self in, the, in those terms, which is a, ultimately um, a dissipation of the self, we see we are filled with affect and intensities, not these kinds of um, strict emotions or um, kind of rigid segments. And they draw a line of connection between themselves and Spinoza, who recognizes these uh, speeds and intensities, how the human is comprised of these longitudes, or longitudes and latitudes coming from all different directions. Uh, which they don't really elaborate on but now everything in terms of becoming begins for them with the idea of becoming woman which doesn't make sense to me it would seem as though becoming animal would be the first kind of molecular aggregate but in any case that's what we have Uh, so everything they assume about categories of molecular uh, women are they're essentially for me immersed in a kind of eurocentric model Uh, In any case, the end process of becoming, that starts from becoming woman, is the continued participation in becoming imperceptible. That's the end goal. Now, what is becoming imperceptible? The easy answer is essentially uh, to disappear into everyone else, which is to make a world, a new world, a kind of worlding. Now, it should be noted that becoming imperceptible only responds to the organic stratum not the um, signifying or subjectifying strata. So becoming interceptible responds to the organic one, whereas becoming indiscernible responds to the signifying stratum, and becoming uh, impersonal responds to the subjectifying stratum. Now if you just jumped into this with, with just wanting to know about this chapter, you're going to be super confused and you got to go listen to the other ones to know about these different strata, specifically the Geology of Morals chapter. But anyway, so the this is essentially the Holy Trinity of becoming, to open up the possibility of becoming imperceptible, becoming indiscernible, and becoming impersonal. But this isn't a total dismantling, right, as they're very clear about, uh, because there's still some recognition implied, lest, you know, it's just total destratification, a total destabilization. Uh, recognition... Of a kind of faintly specter as they describe it in in the last episode as like a kind of yellow mist this kind of mist human left over what they call or this they call this kind of retained perception uh percipiendum percipendium Percipiendum? anyways whatever that's the word they give the perception of the thing that has tried to evade all perception So in their words, if movement is imperceptible by nature, it is so always in relation to a given threshold of perception. They continue, nothing left but the world of speed and slowness without form, without subject, without a face. That is still only recognizable by this single point, but it is recognizable nevertheless. Or not, don't think of it as a point, but like this single kind of possible mode of perception. They then meditate on the use of drugs in this process to say that drugs might appear to like open up these different lines of flight and possible deterritorialization into newness, but drugs are accompanied by other moral aggregates that ground it, like the drug dealer, like capital, like addiction, that make you you know dependent, and then uh, that obviously has its own problems. So they they applaud the kind of effects of drugs but they want to do it without drugs or they say it is the goal is to succeed in getting high but by abstra- abstention it is to be able to get high by drinking water essentially and they so because there are all these you know negative problems associated with it and also just the fact that you know when it's out of control it can often lead to death which they don't they don't want they don't want death so they then compare the punctual system of points which is exists on the X and Y axes that are comprised of these points of these different kind of subjects, these kind of molar subjects with, uh, what they call kind of multilinear systems where lines of flight or linear compositions can be formed between points. And that is no thing to celebrate, even though they might take on weird angles, angles, (laughs) weird angles that might present something new, uh, they instead want to just oppose that to, you know, different, totally different axes into like new lines of flight that extend to infinity into new territories and, and so on, which is essentially to oppose the history assumed of points, leaving them to say that becoming is anti-history. So painting and music perform these tasks, as I kind of alluded to earlier, where, um, Painting deterritorializes the face, whereas music deterritorializes the ear. And I'm going to defer this to the next chapter. So that's chapter 11 of the refrain, which I'm not actually going to do in the next next week because I've already done it. So you can go listen to that now. Uh, it's just titled Of the Refrain. And I had a friend on Sparkles who knows a lot more about this than me uh, to discuss Of the Refrain. So you can go and check that out. But what I will say about it is that they hold a certain potential in music. They think music houses certain potential, but also there are certain risks attached to it, um, like everything else they've been mentioning so far. But the goal is the becoming sound of music, the kind of sounds of nature, for example, where the they oppose the kind of bird song sounds to the insect rhythmic... Um, You know drum sounds like the crickets that make sounds with their limbs banging together or whatever but yeah that okay that pretty much captures this chapter like I said I was very selective in how I kind of presented this to focus on this idea of becoming and what becoming meant but they talk about a whole bunch of different things like secret societies and the becoming secret of the the entire kind of social uh, stratum and what that necessarily means in terms of becoming, how it's a making everything secret, but without keeping anything secret, kind of. Um, if that makes any sense. But yeah, so next time, I'm gonna conclude this this book by talking about chapters twelve and fourteen and fifteen because I've already done eleven and thirteen. You can go listen to those now. Uh, but yeah, but that you know, if I did anything wrong or I omitted anything that I really shouldn't have, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, or any other comments would be great. Take care.